If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. is up everybody my name is james d fiore and this is blackball in 2020 the entire world was met with something that we hadn't faced in a very long time which was a global pandemic uh, many of us were caught a little bit off guard with some of the safeguards that were put in place we were told that they were put in place for our well-being many of us followed the rules and many of us didn't there is so much to unpack when it comes to this pandemic, but the best way to do that is to talk to people who are on the ground, people who have a background in medicine or epidemiology or the study of viral diseases. And that's what we wanted to do today. So I'm going to make this intro quicker than usual because uh, my guest tonight does have other events to go to tonight. So please welcome to the show, Dr. Eric Fagelding. How are you, sir? Very good. Thanks, James. Happy to be here. Thank you very much for coming. This pandemic, if it has exposed anything other than the fact that infectious diseases are really hard to combat and to uh, and to fight against and to get rid of, it also kind of exposed a societal polarization aspect that I have seen in politics and in social issues. But this is the first time I've seen it in a public health issue. Why do you think that is? And why do you think that we are not able to overcome our polarization for something as important as public health? Well, I think, first of all, the, the radical nature in which it swept on, onto the world stage, first of all, has not happened in over 100 years. Over 100 years, nobody has living memory of it. And 100 years ago, we don't actually have videos um, uh, to cr- chronology of but in many ways look it is it came on so strong to react it caught everyone off guard and the speed of which is you know if you basically act too late uh, basically you lose control of the entire thing and the only way to stop it is by because remember, in, in early 2020, we had no, no vaccines. We weren't even sh- like, like a lot of people. Many CDC and WHO weren't even saying it's airborne. We didn't know there was asymptomatic transmission. You, you don't even know it's happening because it's there's no, no symptoms. And all were bigger, basically fumbling in the dark, right? And for something, you're talking about CDC, WHO, completely 
completely wrong about early on. They said, we're not, not sure this human, or, you know, that this thing is airborne. We don't even think you need to wear a mask. Um, we're not, you know, if you can spread it if you don't have symptoms. All these things, like for them to all of a sudden tell, turn around and tell people, oh, you, you have to go into lockdown. In recent times, outside of war, we don't really have any other form of lockdown that's kind of like martial law. So it was something that the world wasn't ready. And then, of course, it hit everywhere all at once. Like when it hit New York City really hard, um, there was almost Texas and in Florida. They didn't get hit until much later in the summer. Uh, it's like, what is this? Shutting down America for something I don't have. Basically, if it's if it doesn't hit them personally, it's not real, right? Because for so of course then it's, you know the the politics of government overreach. You know, I mean the sociologies of, of this. We can study for like a decade or more. Is that people don't want to believe they had they have to take these radical measures, seeing something of this radical nature, and it didn't hit everyone all at once. See, it's you know, it's not real. It's kind of like the saying, "Picks or it didn't happen." But there, my family members get sick, or, or it didn't really happen because it only happened to those in. Boston and many of the East Coast places. So, hence, that just lends to even more. Yeah, it, uh, you said something. Um, sorry, it's from memory, so I make it wrong. But uh, I think you said something like an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Can you tell me what you meant by yeah. that? And if and if you think that we will learn that lesson before the next pandemic hits? Well, I think that ounce of prevention is worth a pound. Understand that's easier to prevent prevent, say, a catastrophic uh, a slower, uh, you can prevent a catastrophic accident and traffic jam. And just, uh, just take a little, little more care, eat a little more vegetables, and more you can prevent so many more other diseases. Um, because oftentimes, you know, what is medicine? Medicine is effectively you are after your body has been wrecked by a disease, right? How there's accident prevention, and then there is what, what do we do to fix the car and to make sure that the car doesn't get totaled, you know, to salvage a car. But basically, if you fix the car, it's you, you, you get sick, see a doctor. But medicine in itself is already hugely done. Right, and the enormous social, financial costs of disease is humongous. But if we just did a few things, we could prevent all the suffering of diabetes, heart disease, cancer, and all did a few things to invest in our health and our society. But nobody wants to do that. This ounce of prevention or the pound of cure—it's like you know, if you think of a stock market or a business, why? Huge return on investment, right? But no one wants to do it. Up, and it's like ah, oh, people always punt. And, and let's go to the example of say a street light at a busy intersection. You know, 
if 10 people, uh, you know, 20, 30 people get injured at this busy intersection every year because of crazy. And it's like, oh, gosh, we got to do something. We got to put in a stop sign, a crossing signal over this intersection, right? So that people don't get killed and run over. Well, you do that, uh, you know, getting that bridge tunnel uh, built is really hard. Do it. The other problem in public health is, public health is the prevention here, is wonderful because now you saved all these people's lives, but they never knew that they would have gone to the hospital and possibly have died, right? And this is the, the if it works, like if, if, if we had a lockdown very early on and gained to just a few pockets and it didn't explode, the, the other side guys were fear-mongering. It was, was never even that bad. You know, it was all over before it went overboard, right? But if you don't do anything, um, I'll help fan in many ways. And then, of course, you know, it, whatever is never enough if you do it too late. And, and this is the conundrum, which is the thing, especially for infectious disease that, you know, quickly, explosively spread through, through especially an urban dense population, especially around holiday time, right? Um, I would just say that, you know, Public health is always in this quandary. Really, people hate you. You act too late, then it's not, it doesn't work. And, and health, right? Because, you know, you pay huge, there's ins health insurance, there's huge medical, huge amounts in the U.S. For, for treatment, but nobody wants to pay upfront. For it. What's sad is, for example, is the CDC is that the, there's like, they hired 4,000 employees for the pandemic, eighty percent of them are being laid off by next month. You know, all, all these extra three thousand two hundred staff of the four thousand are going to be laid off immediately. And you know, nobody's grateful. But if shit hits the fan again, people will be like, "Oh, kind of like fun public health more." But that's that's kind of like the polarization. I I've heard you talk uh, a little bit about how we are sort of leaderless uh, governments don't really have leaders that seem to be able to galvanize the public into doing the things that need to be done during times like pandemics. And also um, the messaging that came out of the WHO, the CDC and the government often was, it wasn't that they contradicted necessarily. It almost was like they were too verbatim and there seemed to be this idea that instead of it, uh, uh, seeming like all of these groups were on the same page, um, a lot of the information that they would give, say, in March of 2020 or April 2020, would then not be the conventional wisdom by October 2020. And I feel like um, it's fine to get things wrong in a fluid situation, but they never owned it. They never owned the things that they got wrong, and it made the public feel like they were being lied to. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, so the the phrase in light science changes, and in many ways, um, you know, you unravel new novel coronavirus they didn't know about before. But I think that what every 
everything on on the government on that. But I think what you can fault them precautionary principle. Like when in doubt, and you know, it's about this. Uh, like for example, oh, it's not airborne. It can't be airborne. Oh, asymptomatic transmission. No, no, no. You, you don't need to protect yourself or isolate. You have symptoms. If you're asymptomatic, you're fine. You know, you don't need to do anything. Um, what if you're wrong? The issue is, what if you're wrong? If you're wrong that, oh, there's no Asian when there is, or if you're wrong that about airborne when actually is, that mistake is huge. And early on, when you are in this, uh, you know, twilight uncertainty phase of what is going on, should have, the government should have taken a precautionary principle. Because there's a lot of evidence coming out of Japan, Korea, that uh, this 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 shit was asymptomatic. You're transmitting it before you show symptoms uh, because it was already exploding from a person who actually got sick later on, and that it was airborne. But like that kind of stuff is what, even in the face of love, a lot of evidence that it is likely airborne, and this aerosol scientist who were just angry about this starting April, May, June, and finally they put out that letter. You know, they were ignored, they were minimized, and uh, and back to them until we were literally banging on uh, on the door so loud that they couldn't stuff is what governments should have been faulted for. Because they were over a set of experts. Because in infectious disease, it's complicated. There's virologists who are, you know, biochemists, about cell biologists of viruses, are um, immunologists who actually understand the human immune systems. Virologists don't usually, uh, are not the vaccine designers per se. And then there's epidemiologists who understand the math of the explosive and the causation. There's asymptomatic. Oh, wait, this is airborne. And then there's aerosol scientists, which are engineers that understand through the air. Like, there's so many different experts, right? There, And there's more. Sociologists and many other on ventilators. But but they oftentimes over-relied on the viral. They're not experts in, in airborne transmission studies. Like, they're not. Because air, the, the, the aerosol scientists who work on smog pollution particles of how long it lasts in the air that's not virology whatsoever you know and like following is there asymptomatic and all all these kind of things therefore do we need to mask epidemiology so oftentimes governments were just so they're tiny uh, and they you know they spread old dogma that it wasn't air Everybody clearly is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the other thing is just lack of precaution. If A, ask more people beyond your little circle and don't because, oh, I don't want to, you know, the economy, you know, the, you know, the don't look up move. You don't want to ruin the economy. Don't, don't, don't shake, don't scare people whatsoever, even if they're headed to scare them whatsoever because the market will crash. 
And, but you know, actually there was just in mind, they studied, for example, uh, open table restaurant reservations, open table, you know, restaurants, right? And they wanted to know, and it was like a border state. Um, one state cl closed down earlier than others, but these state, these, these cities are basically intermingled. And so their infections were similar. So what the restaurants? Was it the lockdowns or was it that the hospitals were filling up in people, right? And, and you know, some people want to blame, oh, it was the lockdowns. It closed, it ruined businesses. All you stupid, um, you know, public health foul, uh, ruined all these businesses. No, they actually did the study. The restaurants and going out when the hospitalizations and deaths were soaring, downs went in. And so hmm. it wasn't that the, the lockdowns killed the businesses, it was killing people that was killing the business. And, and you know, and, and political players who want to blame one side or the other, you know, oh, oh look at those big government people, people to do, they ruined your business. No, I would say it was that, you know, if, and right now, especially with COVID and long COVID, that people are becoming disabled, you know, unable to work. Um, Mental health. Ruining the economy even more, right? Like, if you're talking about killing businesses, killing the economy, of course, is killing the economy. And right now we have record number of people who are sick, do not wish to work because they're sick. And this, we see the stats in the U.S., in, in Europe. Um, and so this is always the thing. Like, sometimes, you know, public health people are the bearer of bad news. Because everything... If everything's hunky dory, you only hear from us during outbreaks or other public health calamities like poisonings, and you know, and and I also want to point out people like you know that there's this such COVID minimizations it's like oh these people they had risk factors anyways oh I got hospitalized this kid had a uh, you know had a risk factor first of all society in which Try to save every kid's life. No child should die. You are sick. If you're handicapped, we live in a society in which children should not die. It's not the 1600s or the 600s or the 600 BC. Kids are not like an oh well. I don't care if a child has risk factors. So a saying that is a degree of you know uh, just moral bankruptcy. See, I, I feel like I feel like people also, you know, there's a big debate, of course, you know, children in schools, but I also want to, yes, it was unfortunate that a lot of, um, you know, it's very unfortunate. And I did not advocate for closing schools, you know, first spring wave. But the, the key thing is that, you know, a lot, a lot of kids are more lost their parents, caretakers, grandparents from that, that is something that you can't just measure on a, on a like, 
millions of kids lost caretakers during this pandemic. And altogether, the pandemic 20 million people worldwide. 20 million people easily. In the U.S., well over 1.5 million. This, this minimization of, oh, oh, you know, kids are immune. By the way, more people have, more kids have died in 2022 and 2021 uh, combined. Kids in England, for example. U.S. is very similar. And I think this, this dismissiveness of uh, risks, absolute moral bankruptcy, and, and I think... We have to think of, you know, like health, protecting the, the able-bodiedness of our children, adults who support these children is, is something that, you know, the, the economic measuring the tip. And of course, when I've been talking about long COVID costs for years to come, yeah. political issues here, that's very, very thorny, but it's easy to point. It's like, ha ha, it was people who shut down the world. Uh, and, and you caused all this. No, the and of course it's gonna whenever it intermingles with political things, it's strife and you know political finger pointing. Yeah, speaking of the political stuff, and I and I, I completely agree with you when um, you talked about the the finger pointing that kind of where one side blames the other. What one thing that bothered me because I'm a curious person is. I wanted to explore where the origin of the of the virus came from. And the two schools of thought were the wet market and the lab. Now, if I wasn't a political person, I wouldn't find anything about that political to, to try to figure out where it came from. But the people who um, thought it might come from a lab seemed to be motivated by their hatred of China. Um, and But when you took the politics away, it was like, doesn't this matter? And then like a year later, I think it was the New Yorker might've been another one um, that, that came out and said, it, it looks kind of like it, it may have, it still seems to be an unanswered question. What is your opinion on, on, on where it came from? And do you think it, ma- does it matter? First of all, does it matter from how we approach it? Uh, how we approach this virus? If it's uh, from a lab versus from nature. And then the second part of that question is, um, do you think that we would survive the politics if it came from a lab? Yeah, this lab question is just like I have a clear answer, and it is such a political mess. Um, like it's not like lab or no lab. I think there's three, three things that gets mixed in: natural, you know, from nature, you know, someone went caving brought some bats back or something um or it was you know some people are trying to say hey lab equals bioengineer that doesn't mean a lab doesn't mean a lot of samples from nature and it could have been a lab accident spilled samples which is totally innocent and it's not a malicious thing which there's absolutely no evidence for i would say they most likely but this is i want to point you mentioned you know china yes there's a lot of around the china issue because you know trump called it you know kung flu um 
and yeah. uh, uh, in a certain way, blew the whistle earliest before many other Western epidemiologists you know, put out put away some of the misinfo. Mis- I, I have a doctor in epidemiology proposition separately, but I'm, I was one of the earliest epidemiologists because the ground in China of what is going on. I have cousins who live there. Um, and so I know how a lot of China's social media is no propaganda. You don't listen. But the fact that, you know, they, the Chinese uh, uh, completely lost, they didn't actually know what to do. Uh, and, and, the, the, and there was no consistent clampdown because actually some of them were true. And uh, it showed that you know what, what was happening is completely under a uh, communist plot in, in, in any way, and, and and in many ways, the you know when you hear, hear something that this could be worse than the that could kill millions of people that we've never seen in a hundred years. Again, the first instinct, is, come on, that's just some political trolling, political propaganda. Uh, trying to scare you, can't be. But if you understand China, you would understand this, that China really that this really was as bad as people made it out, out to be, and that's why I blew the whistle because a lot of people, a lot of academic academics, they don't dare say or draw any conclusions until they're pretty damn sure in journal. Moment, Lancet published, peer reviewed, and then they can finally say, "Well, now I'm kind of sure to be possibly, you know, potentially." No, this really is real. You and and, um, and of course, a lot, a lot of uh, people attack me, and you know, because I used to have have a volunteer uh, or like a with a World Economic Forum, and now it's I'm apparently a global when I've never been paid by and um, oh isn't it convenient that the whistleblower of, of this is a Chinese born in China but you know I'm, I'm all American if you can yeah. have noticed but like on a fly that you know it, it, they want a finger point it's a Chinese conspiracy of some sort willingness and desire and um, and, and a political advantage China or caught saying that this is a China a no biggie scaremongering tactic. And so, you know, we were literally in the dark for a, a, quite a while whenever the sounds in China were there that this is effing real, right? But it's like from both the academia community, it's like, no, we really, no, come on, that can't be. I need to see more. No, I'm not convinced yet. yet. And the, you know, it's China. It's China. It's just some scam, scandemic. It's just to scare you. You know, there, there's a lot of polit- political reasons in, in politics. And then there's academia political reasons of, you know, career people don't, don't dare speak out of line. Uh, don't, don't dare... Uh, because I think being alarmist is good in a global health emergency, right? 
you watched, many people watched uh, Don't Look Up, right? Yeah. The scientist, um, Jennifer Lawrence character was trying to scream at the top of her lung while down. Oh, you know, this is a breakfast show. We don't, don't want to scare people like that. That's right. You know, yeah. th this kind of stuff happens all the time. Um, and I was even told early on when I was trying to warn, it's like one of the major TV networks, the producers told me just like everything's calm, everything's okay. You know, the CDC has a handle, it doesn't, it's not airborne. You don't we need to wear a mask. And like I was actually told by producer people, whenever, you know, a, a little bit of actual reality being a prepper could actually be good right like um movies every disaster movie starts with the scientist being ignored and then of course all, all hell goes Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Yeah, I think that as civilians, we could sense a sort of, I don't want to use the word hypocrisy because I don't want to seem like that hyperbolic, but we would see Justin Trudeau, for example, um, uh, go on air with a mask on and and talk about safety and lockdowns and risks and social distancing and all that kind of stuff. And then we would see him at night at a political event hobnobbing with everyone not wearing masks and we didn't understand how we were supposed to translate that other than that's hip hypocritical and there were so many examples of that and i think that it further divided us um and you know i i think i'm glad we have people like you um to sort of weed through this because you do not seem to me to be a ideological you don't seem to be beholden to some sort of like orthodoxy when it comes to this stuff you just want people to be safe and i've seen you get attacked online for things that you said in like march of 2020 i don't even remember what it was but i don't think it matters because you owned it for one thing whatever it was and who didn't make mistakes and who wasn't wrong at least a few times from like march 2020 to now um and i i just want to if, if if i may be redundant for a moment say again that there was no ownership of mistakes, uh, hardly any, when it comes to leaders and the CDC and the WHO. And I think if they're really angry that there is a certain section of this population that is like neo-libertarian and they, 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 they process their liberty before they process their, um, their empathy and all that, I think that a large portion of that could be blamed on our leaders, uh, whether domestic or international who just never seem to own anything. Um, I, so I, I, I don't know what my question is, honestly, but I, 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 I know the, some of the controversies that you've faced. I won't get into them because I don't think, I, you know, I think they've expired and I don't feel like um, treating you like you have to be punished in perpetuity for a mistake or two that you may have made. But I, I do want to commend you for at least um, when you did say something that might have been an error, whether it was big or small, 
I'm pretty sure I recall you owning it. And I think that uh, your example is something that leaders could probably use. Um, and I think uh, to, to get to your first point, um, you know, I think a lot of our leading wake up because they didn't realize how bad it was. Remember, this is early January, February, early March, 2020. Oh, you don't need to wear a mask. Oh, don't wear a mask. Uh, you, uh, you know, you're going to steal it from. Oh, but then if you needed it, you don't, uh, if they need it, but you don't need it, that's, um, they never explained that. Um, uh, although certain, the, the U.S. Certain, uh, Trump's certain general did eventually uh, uh, admit that he was wrong. You know, they the, those were the advisors for a government. And they tell people to wear a mask, but they go out to their own evening dinner parties because again they haven't like they they, they basically they parrots what a lot of policy makers actually believe it themselves and i think there this is where leadership through example really, really um i think um you know i think everyone's i think should be given a little bit of leeway that you know they weren't quite sure that that there was a saw that but I think the airborne thing, you know, I think by by late, it was pretty obvious this virus is airborne. But WHO kept insisting it wasn't airborne until way into um, May of 2021. He, uh, you know, Fauci admitted by September that, oh, oh it might be a little bit more. And then, but again, CDC didn't um, really make any changes until like, of like late fall, early spring. So I think in many ways they can be forgiven for a period, for example, the airborne thing. And I'm going to give them a pass on the mask thing during 2020. But a lot, a lot of the stuff still to now today, um, right now, pediatric hospitals are in both, you know, Canada and the U.S hospitals and the ICUs. Uh, it's a combination of RSV, flu, uh, and there's still no recommendations for masking. That's that's yeah. crazy. I think masking in schools is minimum re recommended, right? Um, but there's no leadership on that. It's like uh, a note. Oh, oh, if you're coughing and sneezing, use a t tissue, a shirt. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. That's literally what it says. And then wash your hands. Like, yeah. maybe stay home if you're sick. Maybe wear a mask if you're coughing or sneezing. You cough into a t-shirt. Like, like, what is this? Like, just hospital beds are empty. Hospital, pediatric hospital beds are full. And I want to point out something. By the way, they're empty. Do we say, hey, guys, today, you, you don't need to wear recycling because... Hospital beds are empty. Do we say that in public health? No. Doing is legal today because hospital beds are empty. We don't say that. Yeah. No, we, we always wear a helmet, even regardless of the hospital beds full or not. No, regardless of hospital capacity, right? Like this kind of stuff. 
Oh, seatbelts. Oh, seatbelt needed day. No, we, you need to wear seatbelts, period. And in many ways, especially right now, in the, as we head into winter, clearly the flu are, has created this trifecta, um, triple epidemic as, as many. Uh, we need to put in more than just, oh, sneeze into your T-shirt. No pass. And for WHO to also, you know, downplay so many places, uh, CDC says if you're not in a high transmission area, and nursing homes don't need to wear a mask, like we're talking about hospitals, we're vulnerable, and nursing homes where people are very, very elderly and frail, they don't need to wear a mask. That would that is just so illogical right now, and I think. Uh, we're not even getting into vaccines yet, okay? Vaccines yeah. is a whole different beast. Oh, that um, would take too long. And <laughs> responsible messaging right now that they've completely dropped the ball on. People say, oh, kids getting infected is okay. Like, like that is absolutely not Like, decent public health expert says, oh, you should, you should get You should not get killed kids infected. You should not send, um, you know, kids to pediatric hospital beds and pediatric ICUs full. That is not in any way a public health. I have a lot of minimizers out there saying, oh, you know, kids should get a little sick <laughs> to wear a mask, yeah. you know. Like, this kind of nonsense right now is this ultimate horde of media and media supporters who are somehow, you know, sanctioning this. And a lot of Canadian um, public health, Dr. <clears throat> Bonnie Henry in uh, British Columbia and, and in many other provinces, their leadership has just been absolutely abhorrent throughout the entire pandemic. Yeah, I, I guess uh, anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers, whatever you want to call them, have been... Um, part of an overall milieu of uh, Canadian voters. And it is disgusting to see politicians um, strategize how to not make them angry um, by saying things that run counter to their orthodoxy. Um, I want to switch gears now because I know you have to go uh, basically in like 10 minutes. And I wanted to talk um, sport politics for a second because I noticed as I was doing my um, Dr. Ding deep dive, as I like to say, that you are in favor of a FIFA World Cup boycott in Qatar. Um, uh, I, I, I I watched the FIFA documentary on this uh, recently, just the, the, the overall kind of like big look at FIFA. I was completely floored. I knew that they had problems, but I didn't realize how long they've had problems for and what kind of problems that they had. Many people died building their stadiums. Um, they're ve- vehemently anti-gay. Um, I don't really drink, so I don't really care about the alcohol thing, but that was weird. I don't know why they just did it uh, yesterday. They decided to ban alcohol. But as far as the human rights stuff goes, um, it, it's funny because one of my very, very good friends is the official in-stadium host and hype man for the World Cup. And I love it that he's there and he's doing his thing. But I totally understand someone who would actually want to boycott this. Can you give me your sort of like overarching thoughts on the on the World Cup? Yeah, I think first of all, I love the World Cup. I remember uh, watching it many 
and you know the last two oh, by the way the 2018 one was in russia um yeah if you watch i recommend everyone watch john oliver the piece the last week tonight uh, on the on the qatar fifa world cup but you know fifa of course reportedly you know um the the panel the voters uh, the fifa are a million bucks a vote mm-hmm. um in addition to uh choose i think the human rights issues of this modern human slavery system in which basically recruit people from nepal bangladesh india to come work the employer takes away their passport so they can't leave and of course he's complicit in it so you can't just go get another passport um and basically they work with servitudes right they arrive in debt have the debt and they they color like a hundred hundred and fifty people uh, to a dorm uh complex it was like 150 to uh, people to uh, to two bathrooms uh, wow. no showers just abject disgusting conditions and uh the slave weight being being low paid underpaid and of course working in hundred fahrenheit heat which is just you know it's just absolutely horrible all that and of course when i'm talking about the lgbt rights you know the rights of women is of course a many middle eastern issue um like the lgbt and the, again the slavery the absolute slave because they had to build nine nine stadiums for this yeah um and, and Qatar is the size of what Connecticut. It's still nine, nine stadiums out of out of nowhere. It's just pure desert, right? And and this that's incredibly wealthy on a GDP per capita basis. It's the wealthiest country on, on a per capita basis. But uh, it's just the, yet they still slave wages um, and slave conditions to all these migrants workers it is just it's just so wrong so like it's kind of like if you go there think about what happened like it's not like it's 100 years ago you can say like oh, oh this this railroad 100 years ago yeah it is what it is but and you know i can't do anything about it you know but you can do something about it. we're underpaid Till recently, and then uh, you know they were shipped out, hidden away. It's kind of like if you go to someone's dinner party, right? And you bring your kids to dinner party, but the actual children of the household that's hosting dinner locked in the basement and basically being starved, horrible, horrible, abject, disgusting conditions, subhuman conditions at the dinner party and, and then I told you that the dinner made possible by these slave ch- children who were absolutely abused under your nose in, in the basement and, and you knew that and you see and and party uh, upstairs could you sounds really... like the Vatican <laughs> yeah there are na- other analogies 
apologies. <laughs> but could you really do that? Because that's honestly what is how you're celebrating the World Cup. And you know, it's not the players' fault because I know they tried with their arm. Basically, are going to be fine by, by FIFA if they wore these, these one one love armbands or the rainbow symbols whatsoever. I get it's not not the players' fault, and I get it's not the small team's fault, but. The sponsors at the at the core pushed, you know, Adidas, uh, Coca, uh, you know, Hyundai, um, um, McDonald's. So I pushed, for example, yesterday, uh, uh, Coke to Coca Cola directly, um, and I said, "This is how can you guys be leading partners of FIFA, knowing you know this exact exact." Go to a dinner party and party upstairs, knowing after someone tells you the abject condition of the household being who are now uh, hidden in the way in the basement and living in. Go to that party, knowing the conditions the the children partying upstairs. And this is where it's it's a matter of human rights, right? Like this, like child abuse, I don't think is a you know, it is any ways like slavery, you know, the, the abject uh, subhuman conditions. This is a human decency issue, right? Yeah, we we are just turning. And I guess football and soccer is really fun. And it's one that every four year team. But, you know, how did we allow this to happen? It's, it's not like we just learned about it the week uh, before. Like, we've known this is Qatar. We, we've known this is what FIFA is all, all, all about. FIFA loves FIFA, you know, looks the blind eye. FIFA gives all this um, helps propaganda for Qatar. Like, we know we've known about this for quite a while. Sponsors, you know, Adidas... Uh, you know, canceled Kanye after like a week or a few words. Yeah. <laughs> I think Adidas should cancel their sponsorship of uh, a World Cup uh, way faster than that. And again, it's all been well known. This slave labor, this kafala system is well known. And these these squads have been well, well known for years. But uh, again, we just Turn a blind eye, commerce and, and commercial and money. Yeah, money, 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 money. It blind it, it does sort of blind everything. I guess you could make an argument like sports is supposed to transcend politics, but when uh, uh, when your stadiums are being built with slave labor, you're injecting politics into the sport that's supposed to transcend the politics. So you can't really get out of that one. Uh, I felt the same way because I interviewed Peter Tatchell, who's like one of the most uh, prolific and famous gay activists out of the UK. And uh, he went to Sauchi when, uh, during the World Cup there and, um, and protested, like a one-man protested for gay rights and got arrested twice, got beat up. You know, but like he put his money where his mouth is. Um, listen, I, I'm going to let you go because I know that you have places to be. And I wanted to thank you uh, for coming on the show. I got a little bit of heat um, for you coming. And um, the best way that I can put it is that I don't care. Um, I like you. And I think that you spread a good message. And I'd like you. Thank you. I'd like to thank you for coming on Black Ball today, sir. 
Thank you, everyone. Have a great day. Um, that was Dr. Eric Feigelding. I'm really sorry about the audio, guys. I uh, Sometimes, uh, you know, this interview was supposed to happen at 7. It happened at about uh, 20 to 6 instead. I normally don't do interviews when the audio is a little choppy. I don't know how bad it was on your end. On my end, it was like every five seconds I'd miss a syllable or two. Um, so I apologize for that. Um, my audio has been a little bit better lately. Um, I just want to say something because, um, oh, before I do that, I think we should have the next World Cup in the Vatican. And if they have to build nine stadiums because the Vatican is only like 1.2 square kilometers big, boom, no more Vatican. I think it'd be perfect. His analogy of like, of uh, how could you have dinner party at a house with kids being abused in the basement was the most Catholic thing I have ever heard in my life. But that was amazing. I just want to let everybody know um, that over the last, I guess since November 1st, the, the podcast has swelled significantly, um, which is so funny because my production still sucks. My audio actually isn't that great usually. My camera is not that great at all as well. And uh, there's a tendency for me to um, get obsessed with numbers and get obsessed with, um, with, with, with the stats behind the podcast. And I stopped doing that um, a while ago. And I, um, I noticed that I'd go back once a week and I would see that the audience was getting a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. Um, <clears throat> and I just want to say um, thank you to everyone that watches the show on a regular basis. You guys have no idea how much it means to me that, um, first of all, that this podcast is currently ranked higher than Bill O'Reilly and Ryan Jesperson. Um, just, just to let you guys know. Um, but, but really, the... I noticed that I, I, I used to do this thing where I would try to get big guests in order to get the numbers up. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And now what I'm doing, and if you look at the month of November, you can see I am trying to just do the kind of podcast that makes me feel good, where I can get off the air and think to myself, all right, that was good work. And a lot of it has to do with the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church. A lot of it has to do with um, with the stuff that I'm doing right now with David Wallace, where a political fixer turned into a whistleblower, literally for the first time in human history, it seems like. I actually tried to do, I tried to research if there was any political fixer that was completely unknown to the public that then just came out and decided that they were going to blow the whistle on all the scams that they did. And I was completely shocked to find out that I, I can't find a historical figure that fits into that category with the exception of David Wallace. And anyways, my point of all this is that I am learning slowly but surely, and I have taken a lot of great advice from Dean Blundell about trying to be humble, trying to be um, trying to care about the work that I do and everything. And I have, I have realized that the podcasts that get the most traction just happen to be the podcasts where I am, happy with myself when I get off air because of the information that was spread on that podcast and, and deferring largely as much as I can to the person that is my guest, the courageous people that I have had on this podcast just makes me feel like I am filling a space and helping it kind of move 
um, from minute one to minute 60. I, I'm kind of more of a, a sidekick to the guest. And that's how I view myself now, more so than than like the show host and the centerpiece and all that. And um, I'm I'm really satisfied with how with how things are going. So I'm just letting you know this um, to to let you know that I am completely committed to trying to continue to expose bad people in this country, whether these bad people are motivated by religion or whether they're motivated by uh, money or politics or power or hubris or whatever. I would like to just shine a spotlight on on those people so that we can uh, we can live in a country that isn't beholden to them. So um, to everyone that watches this show um, on a regular basis, thank you so much. Honestly, you guys have no idea how much you mean to me. And we will see you next time. Oh, by the way, tomorrow, um, this doesn't fit with anything that I just said, but the first Canadian, the first lady of Canadian rock will be on Lee Aaron. And guys, I got a problem. Um, delicately, I don't know how to tell her that her Madonna, I got once got caught kissing a Madonna picture by my sister when I was 11. Um, and Mitsu, do you guys remember Mitsu, that French singer? Oh, I don't know how to tell Lee Aaron that that was those three women, including herself, kind of got me through puberty. You know what I'm saying? Is if anyone can think of a delicate and a good way to say that, you let me know because the greatest part of telling her that will be she's 60. She's 60 years old now. And I may get back on that train. <clears throat> I'm just kidding. We will see you next time on Blackball. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate it. Did, Will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast, NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holawati from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network. It is your favorite girl. That's right. It's the Ali Mars, the one and the only. Everyone else just ain't me. I am the host of Welcome to Mars, a lifestyle podcast where nothing is off the table. I have come a long way from sex and dating and have transformed the new vibe to all things lifestyle. We still talk sex, but I'm more interested in the journey, where people have come from, how they made it, and where they're going. 
Subscribe or follow to a brand new look and a brand new era. Welcome to Mars. Subscribe or follow on Apple, Spotify, Google, or at theallymars.com. Because even with the new look, I'm still that same bitch you love to hate.